we're ready. Um, so for, just for transition's sake, um, I, want, I want to do just a little bit of a summary and maybe just dive a little bit deeper into some of the things that I mentioned in the last session to kind of bring us all together. But I would love this to really be a time of, of Q&A. And we have some, um, uh, yeah, we can go ahead and put the quotes up. Um, so there's a, there's a slide, they, they'll like zoom. Oh yeah, it's very fancy with the, that. Uh, zooming in. But um, some, uh, some things that might prompt some questions for you. Um, but part of this too is because we've sort of calibrated our compass. But there is a wide map that is friendship, particularly adult friendships. Um, although the kids were fantastic. I need a shirt that just says, Jesus is a super nice friend. Um, <laughs> if anyone wants to market that, I think that's an opportunity. Um, but now we want to kind of get, like, how do we do this? Like, yes, you've painted this lovely, idyllic picture, but, like, you're talking about people. <laughs> and have you met people? Right? Like, they're awful. <laughs> people are so, like, we're supposed to be friends with these people. Um, and I, I, think, I think there's, there's something honest there, because at the end of the day, um, again, as the local church, we are given sort of a special opportunity to live out the concept of, of, of friendship and chosen family in a way that um, allows to deal with the messiness. So I want to start by, by just going back to this idea of chosen family. And I think, again, this is a really powerful framework. And if, if I could go back to the whole um, uh, idea of, of people, like family-seeking pilgrims, that our church is full of family-seeking pilgrims, most, most explicitly and urgently our single community, our widowed and divorced, our, our elderly, our disabled community are actively and, and, and just in many ways um, focus deeply on uh, being family-seeking pilgrims in our church. Everyone needs family, whether they're looking to date and get married, whether they're looking to live celibate lives, whether they're figuring out what the rest of their life is going to look like. Everyone needs family, and friendship provides a way for us to do this. But I also don't want to leave out our married friends, especially our married friends with kids. Um, one of, my, one of my best friends lives in Nashville and we talk once a week and she is one of those people who our friendship survives because she is that person who is always going to go after you, right? She is that dogged person who is like, just believes in friendship and even us moving halfway across the country, she was like, we're, we're gonna stay in contact. But I also talk with her a lot about this because she's in a stage of life where she has three young children, um, ages two to eight, and the oldest one is special needs. And she laments that she just desires friendship so deeply, but she just literally has no time. Some of you know this. <laughs> like, Aaron, I would love friends, but have you met my family? Have you seen my house? Right? Like, it is all I can do. It is all I can do to just try to fail as a parent in these moments and not, like, friendship is just so outside. I just feel like I'm constantly coming up short. This is how she reflects this back to me. Um, and one thing we talk about a lot is that if we were proximate to each other and lived uh, beside each other like we always sort of dream about doing, um, not only would this concept of chosen family allow her space for friendship, but if we think about it in terms of chosen family, um, it, would, it would allow a deeper integration. Because I was like, Jill, if I lived by you, like, I would totally take your kids. We don't have children of our own. We love um, the opportunity to just be with the children of our, of our friends. Um, we'd eat meals together. There, there would be this integration that not only would allow her a little bit more space and bandwidth in her life, but functioning like family in that way could allow for so this. So I, I don't want to be prescriptive here. I don't want to be very careful because... And when we talk a little bit more about the how, this has to look the way it looks for you as Christ Church. You have challenges, uh, you have mechanisms, you have opportunities. So what I wanna do is expand your imaginations. This is what I really wanna do. I wanna offer some possibilities, some ideas, because how this looks for you, how you live this out, will be unique to your situation. We'll dive into a little bit of that. But in some of the ways that we live as chosen family is just reflected in how we understand the concept of family anyway. Um, some, some of my favorite ways that we think about like how families show hospitality to each other are just really simple low-hanging fruit. Like families eat together, 
right? Families eat together. It's the family of God. We have a family table that we come to on Sundays, right? But we also just break bread. We, we meet, we eat. We're going to go to lunch together. Um, I'm, I'm here for anybody who, <laughs> we don't live here. Um, so if you want to go to lunch, please let me know. But like, we're going to go to lunch together and we're, we're going to eat together. And that's, that's some of, of what we do. And, and as we think about chosen families, like, oh yeah, that's an easy thing to do. We are generous with each other. Our immediate families share resources. What would that look like for our chosen families? What would that look like for us to think about the sharing of resources and generosity, the kind of just sort of unthinking, automatic generosity we would extend to our, our immediate families to extend to our, our church family? Families show hospitality to each other through solidarity and justice. Families celebrate and mourn together, right? And we also fight for each other. That's something we do really easily in our immediate family. We don't even think about it. Like, of course, we celebrate each other. We mourn and lament together. We fight for each other. No one gets to call my brother stupid but me, right? <laughs> we do this, again, this is easy. This is something we see in our immediate families. Well, what would that look like for our chosen family? What would that look like for the family of God, the people that we invite in? Families show care to each other. They meet each other's needs. My single friends who... When they're homesick, if they don't have a roommate that is part of their lives in this way, um, they might struggle. They have to figure all of this out on their own. Um, I don't have to worry who's bringing me chicken noodle soup. I've got someone in-house, right? (laughs) My husband just raises glass, right? But we do that for each other, our immediate family. But what does that look like? What does that look like for everybody to have a family, that level of care? And then finally and most importantly, we keep each other. We keep each other. And again, this goes back to that gospel, this idea that we remind each other who we are. We are families and communities of remembrance. We see this idea, remember, remember, remember all throughout scripture, the way Israel understood itself as a people of God was had to remember the story of God so that they could remember who God is, so that they could know who they are and then live that out. And as families, we do that. And we should be doing that. And we should be bringing each other back to the story and the personhood of God so that we can remember who Charlie, we keep each other. We say, hey, I know you. I know you. This is not who you are. Come back to the light. Families do that. And again, what does that look like for our chosen family? So those are a couple things I just wanted to to toss out. If we were gonna really just hem this down, there's a great image that C.S. Lewis gives us when he's talking about denominations and the best of denominations and how they function. It's like a hallway and you go into different rooms and all the rooms are different, but there's something in every room, no matter how different they are, that you're gonna experience no matter where you go. And one is a, a hearth with a fire and a table with food. Tables and fires. Tables and fires. Let's just start there. Basic level of hospitality, where we are nurtured and where we are warmed. I think these concepts are just helpful to get our heads around. But as we do that, we have to be honest about how hard this is. (laughs) I just got a chance to speak with several of you, and it's time to talk about why this is hard. (laughs) It's time to talk about why these challenges. I read some of the challenges you guys wrote on the board. Um, And I know a lot of the questions that we might come with today um, have to do with that. So preemptively, I want to go ahead and give you my list of what I believe. And actually, Wes, you can probably put the other two that are up on this slide. These are just, again, ways to whet your appetite. But there are a lot of things that are difficult. But I want to, the top, the top things I see that make it difficult for us to have not just friendships, but intimate relationships um, one I've already mentioned, which is romance idolatry. Have you ever um, had a friendship with somebody that you loved and there was nothing else romantic going on, but for the life of you, people would not let you forget that, hey, you're single and this person and your friends and this, oh, no, you're gonna, you know, like, it just, we, we, we put, every, we centralize romance so much that it makes it difficult sometimes just to allow friendships to be friendships, right? And this happens, this happens in multiple ways. Also in how we seek, we're not actively seeking friendships the way we seek romance. You know how many dating apps there are? You move to a new city, you need to, bring, you need to meet somebody, there's a dating app, but, and I found this out recently because I work with college students, there is a dating app that has a friendship element. Have you guys, some of you are nodding your head. You never know about this. There's like, oh, but oh, if you just want to find a friend, 
Here's a mechanism for that, another untapped market. Apps for friendships, right? Like, let's, you move to a new city. You're just trying to find people. It's hard. But again, so much that centralizes dating and so little that helps us actually prioritize friendship. Um, so I think romance idolatry is something we have to reckon with. And again, to combat it, we have to really think as a local church about how to create strong, robust counter liturgies because it seeps in and it's, it's really difficult. Um, so that's one. The other thing that um, I think makes friendships difficult is just the fact that we live in a culture <laughs> that prioritizes um, autonomy, individualism, entitlement, and productivity. I've been reading recently several books, one um, about human dignity and American modernism by Peter Lawler and another uh, that's The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry. And what's interesting is they're two people in two completely different fields, but they're saying very similar things about what ails us. And that is that we are a society that knows how to value productivity because it's so tangible. The receipts are there. We can see like, oh, you make this much money, you do this much, you contribute this much to the gross natural product, but what happens is we have no idea what to do with caregiving or nurturance. And we don't value it, and we don't know how, we don't know how to put a price on it, and so as a society, if your gift is like the very fundamental thing of caring for people, keeping them alive, helping them like live flourishing lives, thank you, but we don't value you. <laughs> and we, we live in that. We live in that. And so when we talk about being created for intimacy and we talk about how this being sort of a gospel-centric way that we live and we learn, we are also fighting uphill against a culture that has taught us how, I, I don't know how to, how to put receipts on this. And again, this is why we need these counter This is why we do this as the local church and why it's important because we're already in a culture that is making this hard from without and it's working on us even implicitly without us always knowing it. We don't like to be inconvenienced either. <laughs> I don't like it. Sometimes it's just easier to have everyone leave me alone. But then we live these lives, right? Like I see this with my college students. They're like, oh, I'm just so tired. I can't, oh, I can't go to the thing. My friend, I told her I'd go, but I'm not going to go to the thing. And then they're back in my office a week later. and like, I'm so lonely. <laughs> it's like, did you text your friend back? No, I ghosted them. But you're lonely, and this is, this is also what we see. We see this in our culture, too. I don't know if you saw, about a month ago, a new report came out from the Surgeon General about our endemic of loneliness. It's sad, and it's, and it's distressing. Do you know that we, like this, this study I read recently, our ability to perceive threats drops dramatically when we are struggling with loneliness? Our ability to perceive threats there's so much stuff that happens to us when we're lonely, but we also, often because of a feeling of entitlement and autonomy and not wanting to be inconvenienced, we are sort of hardwired into this cultural value of just ghosting and not going after people and struggling to, to, to be in relationship. And again, this is, this is like a whole sermon series we could talk about there, but, but we have to, I think, be honest about that, that that's the water we're swimming in, and sometimes that is what's making it hard. And then the last thing is just good old-fashioned shame. It's just shame. I could think of intimacy and shame as sort of like these mortal enemies. It's like early days, so we're hardwired for intimacy. We come out of the womb seeking intimacy. Isn't it lovely? But early, early days, before we're even able to articulate it, social scientists tell us that we can perceive and detect and absorb shame. So before we're even er like... Uh, old enough to know what's going on, someone hands us these two plants and it says, okay, you're gonna take care of these two plants. One needs a lot of sunlight and, and, and air and nourishment and the other needs total darkness and isolation, keep them both alive. And we do this and we live our human lives not realizing that we become the caretakers of these two plants that need opposite things so that when we feed the shame plant, the intimacy plant begins to wither because shame says isolate. Shame says hide. Shame says don't show who you are. Lock it up. Don't be vulnerable. And intimacy says the currency of intimacy is vulnerability and connection and people. 
And so we, we vacillate between these things and we're exhausted and we don't even realize we're trying to keep both of these plants alive simultaneously, but as soon as you feed one, the other one begins to wither. Intimacy is a natural enemy of shame because it forces you, it forces you into connection. It forces you into honesty. It forces you into vulnerability. And vulnerability should be, we should be careful about it. Boundaries are good. But at the end of the day, you can't have intimacy without vulnerability. And there's risk there. But for many of us, what's keeping us pulled away is this weird gravity that's inside of us and we don't even realize it's because shame is still harbored in our lives. And the enemy would love to keep us there and love to say, don't tell anyone. Hide there. No one's going to love you. No one's going get, to get it when you tell them. You can't be you. It's all these lies that we're fed. But friends, the gospel tells us who we are. The cross and the resurrection gave us something. A new identity, bless you, in Christ. A new identity in Christ. Which means that nothing else, our circumstances, nothing else, even our brokenness, no, no longer gets to own us or define us. Shame is a lie. But it's, it's powerful and it works on us and we need each other. We need each other so that we can call that out and someone can say, that's not who you are. I know who you are. You are an adopted child of God. You are free and full. You come from abundance and not scarcity. But we have to be in connection and we have to have that vulnerability to even have those conversations. And so shame oftentimes just weighs us down and anchors us in. So there are a lot of challenges. Um, but that's just sort of getting kicked off. There's a lot of ways we can go with this. So I want to start with your questions. And I think we have a, a microphone to, to take around so that everyone can hear. But there's a lot we could say about shame and, or not shame, but a lot, well, that too, but a lot we could say about friendship. And I want to get to your specifics. Oh, here comes the mic. Just wasting time for the microphone. Mm. Oh, one on either side. How efficient. So questions, your questions. Let's talk, let's talk, friends. Let's talk about friendship. How we do it, the good, the bad, the ugly, the challenges. Question right here. Okay, a microphone is coming to you. Yes, pageantry. Okay, what's your name for everyone? My name is Hayes. Hayes. You got it. Um, so coming from a guy's standpoint, you know, focusing in on vulnerability, I know that vulnerability is a good thing, absolutely. And I think in our culture, um, you know, the whole toughen up, you know, uh, mindset um, kind of puts vulnerability on, you know, the back ramp or in the back seat. And so how, um, if, you know, in my experiences, um, not sure, you know, universally, but um, vulnerability can, um, you know, kind of put some guys off, you know, make them distant or just uncomfortable. Yeah. So how do you navigate? Do you like establish first a foundation and then proceed to, you know, um, enter into that vulnerability or like in your experiences? Um, what, what's your, you know, um, yeah, opinion on it? Yeah, no, that's such a good question. Thank you, Hayes. So men, this is especially hard. I was asked to look at book recommendations that I could offer, um, as there's a little brochure that has some of them out there. And you know what I was struggling to find are books about Christian friendship specific to men. If you are a white, affluent, church-going woman, I got books for you. <laughs> so many books, so many great books about like a friend will sit on the bathroom floor and cry with you. And women are like, yes. And men are like, what? <laughs> it's not going to translate well. And yet... There's, there's actually extra hurdles for men, and part of that is romance idolatry. Part of that is, sorry guys, we have, we have you, reduced you to sexual animals. We've objectified you. We've made it so that friendship is difficult for men. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote one of the most like, profound 
treatments on friendship for men. And you know what he spends most of the chapter on friendship? This is in The Four Loves. You know what he spends most of the chapter on friendship talking about? Homophobia. The difficulty of men being vulnerable, the difficulty of men having friends, having, like, taking that intimacy seriously in a very platonic and healthy way, but battling against these ideas where you're being sexualized and sexualized and sexualized and sexualized. We have to do something because men need friendship. And so some of this is dismantling some of those things. And some of this is being explicit and using men's retreats and, and, and small groups and Bible studies. And again, it, it can't, it's not just one sermon or one weekend that does this. But we have to create these counter-narratives, these counter-liturgies, because if we believe that we are created for intimacy, then forward, always forward. And for men, there's extra hoops to jump through. Um, for men to be friends with men and for men to be friends with women. Uh-oh. Tricky. I'm a woman who works with men. <laughs> I have all the wrong gifts. I don't know if you guys know this. As someone who is a woman in leadership, I am always around just a bunch of dudes all the time. I didn't really get a choice on this. I had to figure out how to have proximate like, connections to men without it being sexual or weird. It can be done. You can have healthy marriages, you can have healthy relationships, and it does take work, and it does take a lot of consideration, and it does take accountability and other people being a part of this, but it doesn't always have to be weird, and it doesn't always have to be the elephant in the room, and we don't have to reduce each other to sexual creatures. We don't have to. We can be friends. Some of the best friends I have are men, and I'm 42 years old, and I can tell you that there hasn't been anything even close to the realm of untoward with any of them, just good friends. And I'm so glad they're in our life because they make our marriage better. And a lot of them are friends with my husband. We can do this, but again, we have to be honest about romance idolatry and how much it has infested our minds and our own tendencies and realize that, men, you need friends. You need all kinds of friends. And let's not, let's not disparage age here. Oftentimes we think of older people being more like mentors and not friends, but don't let age be a barrier. We need to expand our imagination on this. So those are some of the things I would say to start with, but it, it takes the little village to begin working on this together. Yes. Test it. There you go. Okay, so in a church that is so geographically dispersed outside of small groups, what can the opportunities be for friendship? Yes. What can the church do to facilitate friendships? That is such a good question. Proximity is an issue, isn't it? Austin, just a little cow town, right? Kind of a small city. You guys are all over the place, I imagine. It can be difficult without literally picking up and moving intentionally next to people, which for some of you, that's an option, but not all of us. How do we do this? Proximity is a challenge because ideally, we actually want to prioritize proximity. We want to prioritize proximity to community, not just in a programmatic way, but in a way to where we can share more of life together, have more natural overlaps. Friendship is an organism. It's not, not it can't be programmed. So. That can help in some ways, but at the end of the day, there has to be the ability for that organic sense. Um, living in Waco makes it a little easier when uh, Father Autry and Catherine and their kids uh, need to be picked up from school and someone's in a doctor's appointment, uh, we get to go pick up their kids. We can do that because we're proximate and it's part of life together. Um, but without that proximity, we have to be more creative. And I'll say this, three of my best friends live in three different states. Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee, not near here. <laughs> um, and we sacrifice a weekly phone conversation. I, three times a week, I have phone conversations with them as, as a way of, of attempting to, to actually create, create some kind of proximity where no proximity actually exists. Um, I think it requires some creativity. And again, there's not one, one prescription for this, but I think we have to start actually generating conversations about what does this look like. So one of the things I do with my friends is we have an app called Marco Polo. 
Anyone? Okay, we got some fans. That's fine. Again, college students, show me these things. I have no technological game. But what I love about Marco Polo is it's literally just like a video app where you like video yourself and it sends it to your friend. And we, we do this uh, in between phone conversations. I'll be uh, just, you know, walking to my car or something. I'll send a small video about the weird thing that happened to me at work and how I fell in front of a bunch of deans and then left with dignity. And, you know, I tell them the story. And, and, and so now when we're on our phone conversation, we're not catching up. We're getting into the deep stuff because Marco Polo allowed us to just sort of see each other's lives from afar. I get to hear about the little details throughout the week. And so when we get on the phone, it's really, okay, so tell me what's giving you anxiety this week. What's giving you joy this week? How can I be praying for you? What are some of the lies that you're feeling this week? And so we don't have to waste the phone call on that because Marco Polo enables us to sort of see each other's lives. I get to see some of my friend's kids kind of grow up. Um, but it's, 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 a bit of a, it's a bit of having to think outside the box as to how we can generate proximity. The good news is technology and other avenues give us some, some options, but also we have to be a little inconvenienced. And that, and that is part of it. Um, some of you guys are, are just not going to be able to make it across town <laughs> to, do, to do things. Like, I think we just have to be grace-filled people for ourselves and each other while prioritizing these connections. Um, and so in some ways, I think the first step is just having conversations and saying, what would that look like for us? What would that look like for a few dedicated people to say, we want to prioritize this where can this start? Um, because the church is a great central location, but for the rest of the week, it can be difficult and people have different variables. So again, I don't want to be too prescriptive on this, but the thing is, we're not even talking about it. We're not even having the conversations. We're not even saying this is a priority. But we don't have to diminish our family life. We don't have to deprioritize our children or our marriages or our jobs to say this is important as well. This is important too. And you know what? I may sacrifice a little bit here and here and here to make room for it, even if it's just a phone call with somebody while I'm cooking dinner. Those little touching points, I think, are the start. And, and I wish there were better answers, but we've already set ourselves up where we're not really living in close community in a way that would facilitate this. So we have to get creative and give grace to each other. But the gospel is at stake. Don't forget that. The gospel is at stake. We don't get the luxury of isolation. We have to find a way forward with this. We have to think, and it, it will be hard. It will be challenging. But if we're all saying, let's, we're gonna dedicate ourselves to solutions, let's try things. I would love to see churches all over Anglicanism have those conversations. What, what a difference that would make. Um, can we talk a bit about the prioritizing piece. How should married people and folks with families prioritize their chosen family of the church? I think I'm a single person and it can be really obvious when you're chosen family, but like second tier <laughs> for everyone all the time. How does that prioritization work? Because it doesn't feel like family when you know your second tier to their kids all the time. Yeah. Abs yeah. The Woo, we're getting into it today, friends. <laughs> this is so good. It's a bigger lift than just saying stuff. So let me just caveat with that. This is a culture shift. This is why I love that you guys are doing this weekend because it begins with us saying, wait, what about this possibility? I would encourage you, friends who are married, friends who have kids, who are looking to, to create more chosen family in your life, start having conversations about how this would look, how you integrate this well. Um, my husband and I don't have our own biological children. Um, we work with college students, so we're not, we're never without children. And we have uh, friends who have been procreating endlessly. And uh, so we have so many children in our lives. We have uh, eight nieces and nephews. And like I said, uh, we, have, we have friends in Waco who, if, if they, need us to, they need a night out to babysit, we, we, we go and we give them a free night of babysitting and spend time with the kids. On the flip side, one of the things they do for us is they say, hey, our kindergartner is going to be in a Christmas pageant. Would you like to come? Because my answer is yes. 
Do you know the chaos that is a kindergarten Christmas pageant? We don't have our own children. We would be the creepiest people in the world to just show up to witness this sort of thing. But we're invited by this family to be a part of that family. So we get to go and see the crazy that is a Christmas pageant or the fun of the Little League game or the birthday party. We get integrated. There are ways to integrate, and we have to be intentional about this. But we also have to be careful about ways that we think about people. And it would be weird if we were just being used as babysitters. That's not integration, right? There's a two-way street in a conversation that's happening. Um, Because we don't have our own children, my husband and I have had conversations over the years and continue to have them about keeping a room in our house for someone who might need to move in. And over the time as a married couple, we have had people live in our house. Um, Couples, single people, families. Uh, Something that we've committed to, it is not easy. (laughs) And if you decide to do this, uh, say goodbye to your stuff. Um, Because sharing life with people is not just inconvenient, it can be really brutal. (laughs) Um, But we feel blessed by it and it is good. These are options I, I want you to consider and have conversations with your families about like what might this look like for us, what, what do we have? What is the space in our lives that might be difficult, but let's start talking about that. And anytime someone came and lived with us, we had really good conversations about how to set boundaries and how to, how to live well together. And we've done it. We've done it multiple times, and it's always been really good. And right now, we have um, a growing number of people in, in our church and, and in the Waco area that we're connected to who are committing themselves to lifelong celibacy, and they need family. And we are being very prayerful about what it might be to integrate someone into our family who doesn't have family but needs a space. And what would that look like? Let's have these conversations. Start with your family and say, where would this look like? Who do we know? And then think about true integration and not just using people as functions. Um, It's really weird for single people to be like, will you adopt me? (laughs) You be my family. Um, it, there, there's a, again, there's a power shift because we do value certain status over others, and that's just implicit, and we feel that, and it's tough. It's tough for single friends to say, can I be a part of your family? And so in some ways, married friends, fa- people with families, let's think about what it would look like to initiate this. Let's think about what that would look like, and then have a conversation because single people can tell you how they feel devalued. <laughs> and how it would be weird. And let's just start having a conversation where we say, what would this look like in a healthy way? And let's bring in, you know, some, some clergy to give us advice about this. How do we do this well? How do we set the boundaries? Because it can happen. We have seen it happen. I've witnessed it happen in my own life and in other people's lives. We can more deeply integrate chosen family. Um, but we also have to combat these things in our culture that I hopefully have identified some of them for y'all today and think deeply about how that hurts us. So starts with honest and prayerful conversations and then extending those to others. And then we go from there because we will hurt each other. Let's not kid ourselves. We will hurt each other. But the trick to being messy people, (laughs) I'll just say this, the gospel gives us the way forward because it gives us a way to be grace givers and grace receivers and to be people who confess and repent and because we are the people of God, we, we have that, and that is valuable. Yes? Uh, yeah, my, my question would be, if you were given the choice between compatibility versus proximity. I mean, ideally, we're in physical proximity with our friends, our community, to where we can see them more than one day a week at church or in small group or something. Mm-hmm. But then also, it's rarely you can find somebody in physical proximity of you that has the same, they're at the same life stage or the same economic level or same career. I mean, like all those things that we're seeking to be, to find connection with, um, because we, they're shared experiences. Um, mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, physical proximity gives you the opportunity just to run into these people at random times throughout the week. So I, I can, it's hard to get both. And so if mm-hmm. given that choice, which would you prioritize? The experts would say we should be doing both, but, but not to the same degree. So this is somewhat of being able to take an audit of your life um, 
and realize like who is in my proximity? Who do I work with? Who are people, who are, who are folks that it may not be an intimate friendship, but for whom we can do some shared life, whom we can have some touching points. Um, there are concentric circles of these, these ideas of, of friendship and access and having people who help us and are reliable um, neighbors who may not be Christ followers, but who will be able to watch your kids in a pinch because you've built trust between them and, and they are part of your, your existence. So not putting too, too many things in a box, but actually taking an audit. And again, it astonishes me how, how little we just even begin to think like that. And this is, this is some of it, friends. It really is as simple as just beginning to say, where are my people? Who do I know at work? Who do I know in the neighborhood? Who is, is, is close to me? Who do I know in church? And what are the challenges related to that? Well, they, they don't love Jesus, and we love them. We have a lovely friendship with our neighbors, but that's only going to be able to go so far because the dynamics of that relationship will only allow us so much intimacy. And you know what? This person, they speak truth into my life. They love me. They see me. They know my story, but they live all the way across the country, but I'm going to make sure I talk to them once a week, if not every other week, just just because that is valuable and gold. And I may not have it here yet, but I do have that person. So how do, we, how do I incorporate that in? So it's not, it's not trying to box up too much, but think of this as, as a lot of little like, threads that go out of your life. There are people right now in your life that you could be making more inroads with to bring people beyond just your nuclear family into your life in different ways. Um, I would say at the end of the day, you need a couple of people, and it may just be two, who know you and can preach the gospel to you in that friendship. Um, as adults, it's hard. And again, I don't have any in Waco. I do have some that live in other states, and I do try to talk to them once a week. And I'm hopeful, maybe in Waco, I'll find some friends. But as I said at the beginning with the cantaloupe story, I'm not the expert. I'm not getting this right all the time. I know this is hard. But I also know that for myself, I went um, years without friends, any kind of friend. I didn't realize it was happening. I had just become a clergy person. It's a weird thing. Counselors, clergy, people, some of you know this, like you become everyone's counselor or you become everyone's clergy. And even my close friends, people that knew me as Aaron, stopped knowing me as Aaron and they started knowing me as chaplain. And something weird happened and it happened while I was sleeping. And next thing I knew, I, I had gone months, six, eight months, and I couldn't remember the last time someone had said, how are you? so hard and it was so difficult and I didn't know what to do and and I'm, I'm fresh off of this we moved across the country um, I don't say this to say just go make friends but you have to start somewhere you can't just be alone I didn't realize that not having friends was not only just lonely and painful it was breaking me down as a person it affected my marriage it affected my, my work life. I didn't realize the repercussions. This is, and I, I, incidentally, I was getting my doctorate at the time where I was literally studying this. <laughs> and my life was just this abysmal crater of, of nothingness. And I'm like, friendship is for everyone. You know, like it's just, yeah. <laughs> and I would, I, would, I would rail in my prayer life against God. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Got to be kidding me. This stuff is so real and so true, and I believe it so deeply, but I have nothing to show for it in my own life. So I say that and I share that with you guys because I don't want to be flippant about this, but we have to take this seriously. For me, you know what step one was? Therapy. I got a therapist. That's not my friend, I pay them. <laughs> but for the first time in a long time, I had one person whose entire attention was on me in that moment to check in with me and to tell me true things. And I needed that because I, I didn't have it in any other form. And then we went to marriage counseling and we started working on that internally and we, we began to say, what's next? I think the Lord is moving us to Texas. Okay, let's go there and let's keep the door cracked in a, that little sliver of hope that maybe we'll find some people. And guys, we've been here a little less than two years. We're still working on it. We're still working. As a clergy and as a chaplain, um, I have to set a lot of hard boundaries with a lot of people in my life. So I've got a ton of people in my life, 
very, very, very few friends. It is, it is hard, but I can't be, be lax about this. I'm not allowed to just sit in isolation. The gospel is at stake. And yes, my marriage is a part of that. And my work colleagues are a part of that. My therapist is a part of that. My friends I call on the phone are a part of that. But I'm still looking and I'm still pushing. I'm still hoping and taking those audits of my life and saying, who? And then for me, there's an added issue because now that I've experienced such pain in isolation, I don't want to be vulnerable. Some of you are like, I feel you. (laughs) I've been there and I've been vulnerable. And even if I found a person who really wanted to go there with me, I don't know if I could. It's a lot of challenges. But friends, you were all in this room. You all signed up for this. You all saw that it was about the art of friendship and you came. Something has to be starting here, now, today. And I know we've got more questions and I know we're almost out of time. So we'll probably take one more, but I want to encourage you. You just have to start. This has to start. Have the conversations. Talk to your families. Talk to people you're close to. Resurrect that friendship with someone across the country. Say, can we do a once a month? FaceTime is a beautiful mechanism. (laughs) You know, like, start. Start. Take it seriously. The gospel's at stake. Uh, In uh, Proverbs 18.24, it says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So I wanted to ask you in our pursuit to and endeavors to find friendships, um, like everything in life, there's pros and cons and positives and negatives. I wanted you to speak on the aspects of unhealthy friendships, unhealthy relationships that we may encounter, and how to be able to, um, I guess, separate those from the positive friendships and the healthy friendships. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. This is so important. We have thousands of books about how to detect toxic and healthy relationships in romance and marriage. So few about friendship. The good news is a lot of the signs are the same, Um, but we're not spending a lot of time teaching our children, teaching ourselves, educating ourselves. There's not a lot out there that's helping us grow and develop and mature in the art of friendship so that we can have healthy and not toxic relationships. No relationship is perfect, no friendship is perfect, but it can be healthy, even in its imperfection, just like our marriages. Um, And I think we need to be better at detecting that because sometimes you need to stop being in a friendship with somebody because it's not a healthy relationship. There are not good boundaries. There might be codependency. There might be toxicity. There might just be, gosh, I had a lovely friend, sweet, sweet woman, but could not keep an appointment with me. We would try to get breakfast once a month. And I remember one time we went an entire year and I had tried to set up and I had tried to reschedule. And she's a nice person. So nice. But I had to stop. I had to stop. There was no reciprocity. There was no reciprocity. And I think as much as she would have liked to, I wasn't a priority to her. And, and I tried and I let it take some time. And then I finally had to say, I'm not reaching out. That doesn't mean we don't still have this wonderful cordial relationship together. And we, we both lived on campus, so we saw each other pretty regularly. But we're not... We're not tight. Um, we need to be able to, to assess this well. But the difference between a toxic relationship and just normal relationship with healthy people, I think is the difference between whether or not we can actually exercise the mechanisms the gospel gives us for the restorative work that we do with messy people, right? Like in my marriage, we are both broken and messy people. We have learned, marriage is a master's class in forgiveness, Amen right? We, but, but thank you, Jesus, we have the gospel that already tells us that, hey, we are broken, but guess what? You are a forgiven people, which means you have the ability to forgive. And because you've been forgiven, you also have the ability to receive forgiveness. And we become grace givers and grace receivers, and through that, we are learning about the gospel powerfully, but it's, it's also what allows us to live under the same roof together in a healthy 
relationship. And some of that is just how we work. We have to be people who are able to do this exchange. And if someone is willing to go there with you, if someone is willing to be in that with you, if someone is willing to say, hey, I need to, I need to confess this, or can I just tell you, that thing you said the other day really, really hurt me, but, but I don't want it to affect our friendship. Can, can, I, can we talk about this? And someone to be able to have the courage to say, I am, I am so sorry, friend, will you forgive me? And it gives us the opportunity to say, while it is hard, yes, I, I do forgive you. Can we find a way forward? Is there reparative work we need to do? These are all, this is all gospel language. This is all things we've learned because of Christ on the cross. This is all baked into our Christianity, which is why we have the ability, I think, better than anyone to have healthy relationships, even though we know we are in broken relationships with broken people and we hurt each other. But if you have somebody who's willing to go there with you, if you have somebody who's willing to do that, then you have the ability to have a healthy relationship, despite the fact that you will hurt each other and let each other down and disappoint each other and not always get it right and say weird things. We do that, but when we can't, when there's gaslighting, avoidance, breaking down of basic dignity through small, subtle cuts, we have to be honest about that. And honestly, these are moments to consult trusted people, your family, <laughs> clergy, others, and say, I don't, I don't know, is this at that point? What do I need to do here? This is not an exact science. I think we do this together, but I think we have to be ready to say, I would have loved to have had this friendship with this person, but I can't. It isn't, it isn't right, it isn't good, and we're gonna have to let it go. So, it is five till noon. Ryan, I see your hand there. This is great, thank you, Aaron. Um, so much, uh, there's so much we're trying to cover. Um, I wanna get back to the question, what can, Christ Church do? Um, just to throw a couple tangible ideas. It may not be good ones, but there's some ideas. Um, before I do that, I want to say that, you know, you've quoted some of this, but we're in this friendship recession. You know, so you see the data around the number of people who have close friends relative to 30 years ago is dramatically different. Right. You see the research around, like, chronic loneliness has the impact of having about 15 cigarettes a day on your health. Uh, the U.S. Surgeon General had a release earlier this year that at any one point in time, 50% of the people in the U.S. You know, observe that they're lonely. Yeah. Um, there was a, a Harvard study, I think the longest uh, study on friendship, 80 years longitudinally. They found that the, the closest, the best indicator for being healthy at age 80 was the quality of your friendships at age 50. Like, that was the, the highest correlator. It wasn't marriage, it was like relationships. Um, so going to Christchurch, I think that, I think we, we can't say try harder. Like, I, I don't think that's the answer. Yeah. I think we can help people know how important it is, but having people on their own just work harder, try better, I don't think that moves the needle. Yeah. So I think what churches like Christchurch need to do and other churches really like across the country and globally really is in what ways can you create better on-ramps yeah. for people? And that, that means that there's on-ramps for people to express like the needs that they may have uh, that may happen today in, in small groups, but it may not. I think you know, there may be, I don't know the situation, but we may be putting too much pressure on the small groups to be chosen family. And in some cases, it may be that way, but in some cases, it, it may not. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean that there are opportunities for chosen family that are otherwise not happening? Yeah. So that's kind of one, one thing to consider. Another thing to consider is, is the theology of chosen family truly adopted at Christ Church? Because if that, if what we're saying, you know, a lot of what you shared with earlier today, mm -hmm. if, is, that, is that the theology of the church? If so, what are the implications? going to the question earlier that has implications about prioritization, you know, as this, as this pans out. And then more practically, you know, are there ways in which people uh, could, could find ways to express needs so that people can lean in and provide it? For example, um, I, I know this happens today, but like when there's, we have a number of, of uh, prolific families here as well, Aaron, and so there's opportunities for, for meals to be delivered. 
And so there may be an outbound, hey, we need a meal. And that's, that's a good opportunity for people to then say, oh, that's a way to kind of lean in and help. So there could even be like information exchanges in a way that could happen more formally than happens today. So my broad point is I do, if, if Christchurch is serious about it, I don't think the answer is just try harder. Yeah, I, I, t- I totally agree. Um, and I, I appreciate that. And this is, this is the rub of this whole weekend because we talk about it, we, we, we elevate it, we say the gospel's at stake, it's necessary, the art of friendship is so important, it is how we learn, understand the gospel, and then I go back to Waco. Thanks. Good to see y'all. At the end of this, the synergy that comes out of this has to start here, both in, at the lay level and at the leadership. It's not just dependent upon the leaders to create the culture, but it's also not just dependent. It, 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 has, to be, it has to be mutual. And I won't be prescriptive on this because it may be small groups. It may not. It, I believe it begins with prayer. And I'll be talking a little bit about this in my sermon on Sunday, so not to, not to there, there is another capstone that goes on top of all of this, but um, we, we can do this. Christ Church, you can do this. God places the lonely in families. This is how, this is who we are. This is how we live. You might say, I don't know how we're gonna do it. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to get started, but today can we at least say, because of the Lord, because of the Holy Spirit, because we are the church, this is possible and should happen here. And then the rest is the messy journey of figuring it out together. And it's going to happen in pockets and it's going to happen in individual households and it's going to happen in conversations in some small groups and some not. But we came to this retreat to start and I, I, I release you from this weekend to begin, to begin the conversations and to be very prayerful. And let's start at lunch. Let's ask the hard questions. Let's share our stories. Let's share what scares us about the idea of friendship and how we just don't know if we have enough space for another person in our life with all of our kids. Let's just start honestly, prayerfully, but let's do it and let's keep talking about it and let's keep trying because the Lord will do it. The Lord will do it, friends, and, and let's, let, let, me, let me pray for us, Lord. I bless this room. I bless these people. I bless this church. You have already shown so much richness and abundance here, people who are hurting and striving and crying out for this. Um, and Lord, I am excited. I'm excited what you are doing here, but we have no auspice that says that we will somehow cleverly find a way forward because trying harder is not the answer, but we are dependent on you. And we start by just surrendering that dependence and saying, you have equipped us and you have given us gifts and place and talents and drives, and we just need your direction We need your help, and we need others to come alongside to surprise us, Lord, with the people who will come into our lives and walk beside us on this. And Lord, let this be a place where the the type of chosen family, the, the, the missional lives that exist in this church become an overflow, not an insulated place where we're only taking care of each other, but is so bright and so beautiful and so wonderful that it just pours out into the city, into these streets, into uh, the people in need all around us and on mission for you. Lord, help us. Help us know where to start and open our hearts to what you're doing here. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.